0: Hello and welcome back to the Social Review Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, It's been a bit of a hiatus, um, uh, two month long-ish, maybe a bit more hiatus, I think. Um, But thank you very much for coming back. Um, Even though we've been away for a very long time, hopefully you can easily settle back into the swing of things. So on today's episode, I am very delighted to be joined by...
1: Hi, uh, I'm Peter Mason. I am the National Secretary of the Jewish Labour Movement.
0: Peter, thank you so much for coming on the podcast um, talking about the issue of anti-Semitism, the Labour Party, the EHRC report and everything surrounding that. Um, Long-time listeners will know that this has been something which we are incredibly committed to discussing um, and talking about on both the website and the podcast. In fact, it was arguably one of the main reasons we were set up um, way back in 2018, over two years ago now, um, was because we realised there was a need to have a space to discuss left politics, left-wing policy, left-wing economics that wasn't in some way tainted by anti-Semitism and that was very committed to anti-racism. Um, so thank you very much for coming on, Peter. To, to start with, I thought it would be good to just sort of go over the basics of what's been going on over the last few weeks in relation to the EHRC, EHRC report. Um, for any listeners who haven't had a chance to read it in full or read parts of it, what, what were the sort of basics that the report came out with?
1: Yeah, um, you know, where to start in the story of um, Labour Party anti-Semitism and the report of the Equality and Human Rights Commission. Um, the, the report was released coming up to three weeks now, um, and it was effectively the sum total of a period of work that uh, the Jewish Labour movement and others had done to unfortunately have to refer our own party, the Labour Party, to an equality regulator that it the Labour Party had established, uh, and principally because we had come to a, the conclusion that the Labour Party was unwilling to mark its own homework, or really to take any sort of leadership over the issue of, of anti-Semitism. Um, and so the Equality and Human Rights uh, Commission was brought in, um, and the report was, um, you know, from our perspective, a pretty much confirmation of everything that we had said to them um, in the course of their investigation. Um, and, it, and it principally found three things. The first was that the Labour Party had harassed Jewish members. And and it did that by looking at 70 uh, cases, a sample of uh, cases that had been referred to it, not the Labour Party overall and and in a particular time period. And and what it found was that um, in a third of those cases that they reviewed, there was direct member-on-member anti-Semitism. But the Labour Party itself perhaps wasn't liable because it was member-on-member. It found that in 18 cases, there was a question over the Labour Party's liability for it because the individuals engaging in that harassment perhaps were Labour Party officers, Um, they might have been councillors, but the nature of the relationship between the member and the officer was unclear. Um, But in two very specific cases within the case study of 70, um, there was direct liability by the party for the conduct of those individuals in harassing Jewish members. The second point was that um, in the Uh, political manipulation of the disciplinary process um, by those um, at the top of the party in leadership positions. The Labour Party had indirectly discriminated against Jewish members uh, because Jewish Labour Party members would have expected their uh, complaints to be dealt with in an appropriate uh, way. Um, And the third was indirect discrimination as a consequence of the Labour Party effectively deciding uh, not really to tackle anti-Semitism with the degree of and vigour that it should have done. Um, And, um, you know, it compared that action or that, that inaction um, to the actions of the party and other forms of, of, of harassment and discrimination, which you know, from our perspective still aren't perfect. But nevertheless, the sum total of those three uh, acts, if you like, was a founding uh, a finding of, of, of unlawful acts on behalf of the party, discrimination against um, Jewish people. And it was quite significant insofar as you know, it, it having been the first if you like statutory investigation of a political party Um, It's the first time that that, that such a thing should happen. Um, And and, and from our perspective, you know, one of the the key outcomes in all of this um, is the tone in which the HRC made those decisions. And they said very clearly um, in that report um, that there was an abject failure of leadership. Uh, And not because the leadership didn't have the ability uh, to grip that issue, um, but they certainly came to the view that um, perhaps they were too sluggish um, and people could have done much, much more. Mm.
0: Yeah, I th- thank you. Thank you very much for the for that, that overview. Um, in, in terms of um, going forward, did, did, did the report make any sort of recommendations as to what the Labour Party should be implementing um, now and in the future in regards to tackling the tackling, tackling anti-Semitism more effectively?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the report's made a significant number of recommendations. And, mm. and the important thing to bear in mind about, about those recommendations is that they're you know, they're not optional anymore. Mm. You know, we've we, we tried that. We, we, we spent five years begging the Labour Party to take a degree of action that we thought might kind of stem the tide of, of the issue. Uh, and the Labour Party chose not to. So mm. the recommendations in the EHRC's report are now are now mandated. And the Labour Party mm. will have to, by the 10th of December, come up with an improvement plan that it will submit to the EHRC. Um, and that improvement plan will then be judged over a period of, of six months. And if the Labour Party failed to implement that improvement plan, then the EHRC retain powers to kind of injunct the Labour Party if it continues to commit unlawful acts, or indeed seek court action to um, relieve the situation. Mm. Um, and, and some of those recommendations are, are really important, and they're ones that we've been asking for a significant period of time. In fact, you know, mm. recently reviewing letters that we were sending to the Labour Party um, in 2018 and 2017, making very practical suggestions about how we might mm. um, uh, overcome issues of, of discrimination uh, but it's things like instituting a, a disciplinary process that's unencumbered from factional political manipulation you know a truly independent process that's not allowing mm. friends and allies of key individuals to be slapped on the wrist uh, you know in pursuit of this notion that it's more important that um, people retain political control of machinery than it is to tackle discrimination within the labor party. Mm. Mm. It's asked for um, uh, proper training for those involved in making decisions around disciplinary issues, those subject to disciplinary issues, as well as, if you like, a general um, level of um, uh, of training for those who are involved in um, uh, who are involved in the party. But it's significantly and importantly, another thing that it's also done is it's very much identified um, who the agents of the Labour Party are, and that's an important distinction um, because um, an agent of the Labour Party, not. On political electoral terms, um, but somebody who holds positional power in the Labour Party. And that may be a CLP chair, um, a CLP secretary. It might be a member of the Parliamentary Labour Party. Um, mm. you know, it might be a member of the NEC. It might be a councillor. But effectively, the the, the, the the view of the Equality and Human Rights Commission was if the Labour Party is giving an individual within the Labour Party agency power or control over decision-making, um, and they use that in the context of the Labour Party, then the Labour Party is liable for that, that individual's action. And I think mm. that's perhaps some of the reason that you're seeing the degree of action that's now being taken um, in response to um, those recommendations, um, which, you know, if the Labour Party don't implement, we will we'll face some serious trouble.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And um, for, from the perspective of, of JLM, you, you mentioned how sort of like closely intertwined um, you've been with this process, the, the the entire length of it and how long you've been um uh you you know you you mentioned sending letters way back in like 2018-2017 to the Mm -hmm. Labour Party um what 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 have you guys made of the the response from the Labour Party since the publication of of the the report have you been broadly um have you been broadly pleased have you been have there have you guys still got criticisms or or what what, what's what's your guys sort of position at the moment so you know
1: a a bit of potter history you know the Jewish Labour movement's been affiliated to the Labour Party for 100 years. We were established mm. in 1903. Um, and we were established in 1903 principally off of the back of anti-Semitism that existed within the trade yeah. union movement and on the left, mm. uh, which sought to exclude uh, Jewish workers from the trade unions of the day, uh, Jewish workers who were fleeing pogroms and persecutions from the pale of the settlement, uh, you settlement, know, and who were being called some really you know disgusting things actually by some of the, mm. the early middle-class socialists like the, like the Webbs and the early Fabians. Mm. Um, you know, fast forward to 2013, when a young group of um, activists, if you like, took over uh, running uh, the Jewish Labour movement on a manifesto of change and of you know, forward think- thinking. And you know, recently we were reviewing it and you know, anti-Semitism mm. wasn't, wasn't mentioned once in a little manifesto that we, that we stood on, um, but it certainly entered the Labour Party in a way that it did. Mm. And, you know, there have been a significant number of people for whom have spent the last five years pleading with the Labour Party to act uh, and it failing to do so. In in response to the HRC report, we're kind of in the same situation insofar mm. as our voices have been removed from the story uh, mm. because of the intervention of one man. On a day that we should have had the space to be able to challenge the Labour Party to reassess and to reflect on all that had happened over the last five years in a space that we should have had the ability to discuss how anti-Semitism had entered mainstream political discourse in the UK, uh, we were instead talking about whether or not one man was indeed the victim of anti-Semitism within the Labour Party himself. And you know, and after five years of asking the Labour Party to act and it not do, not doing so, um, that's an incredibly depressing experience for an awful lot of people.
0: Yeah. Absolutely, and, and uh, yeah, I, I I completely take your point that he's sort of there's sort of this looming that sort of like looming presence over what what should be should should have been a, a time of sort of like healing and, and difficult conversations, and it was sort of a distra- sort of a distraction from that the the issue surrounding um, Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, I mean, just just touching on this briefly, uh, what what was what was your sort of like reaction to the those 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 um those recent developments so at the time of mm. recording it's um it's thursday evening um on the 19th of november so Gorman's just been reinstated to the labor party but does not currently have the labor whip that's been withheld by keir starmer um yeah i mean look if, if if
1: i reflect on what happened on the day of of the launch you know we had um we kind of booked our press conference to get ready mm. to respond to what you know might have been in the report we hadn't seen it before anybody else. You know, we we Gosh. received it at ten a.m. at the same point as everybody else. That's quite, again, disempowering. You know, other people talking about antisemitism and the impact on Jewish members uh, for five yes. years, and you know, not us. Um, and you know, we we'd had it for the best part of thirty-five minutes before a statement was issued from um from Jeremy Corbyn. You know, we we hadn't. You know, we we'd probably gotten through maybe the first first chapter at that point. Yes,
0: it's one hundred and thirty pages. Isn't it's it? un-
1: exactly, and you know, ha- you know having gotten perhaps into one chapter of the report, knowing what the headlines were, mm. um, it was this, this kind of crushing feeling that, here we go again, you know, um, we're mm. going to have to fight for our voices uh, to be heard in in this debate, a debate that's consistently shut us out of it, or, you know, you know, malign influences have effected, uh, effectively tried to kind of put words in our mouths. Mm. And, and and before that statement, I think we probably thought we were not really going to talk about Jeremy Corbyn that day. You know, he, mm. he, he from our perspective, and Maybe even our lines. You know, he's yesterday's man. The British public made their decision about Jeremy Corbyn's legacy in December of two thousand and nineteen, and you know, here were we wanting to move beyond this topic to focus on, as I say, yeah. how anti-Semitism entered the mainstream of the Labour Party. But of course, in his typical characteristic way, um, he positioned himself as the victim of Labour Party anti-Semitism and, and made anti-Semitism about him. And, and I suppose what it's done is it's crystallised in a lot of people's minds, um, in probably a, in probably a kind of a more angry way than they necessarily would have would be if if he hadn't done what he had done. Mm. Almost a fundamental point, which is who will be held accountable? Who will be held accountable for the entry of left-wing antisemitism into mainstream British political discourse? Because you know, whilst perhaps the day of the report wasn't the right day to have that conversation, you would hope that any sort of introspection about what's been happening these past five years would have pricked the conscience of people for whom didn't do enough or failed to act when they should have done. Um, and we perhaps might have come to that conclusion in a much healthier and and, and and more open and more honest way than we have been forced to. So in in respect of you know the whip, right, well... Quite frankly, you know, I don't care what Jeremy Corbyn said on the day of the mm. reports, and I certainly don't care if he um, is, um, you know, contrite about the words that he used on the day. What I'd like to hear from Jeremy Corbyn um, is an acknowledgement of his inaction, the, the failure of leadership, the, the, the cultural failure that the EHRC mm. report so clearly highlights. Um, and I want him to say very clearly uh, that he recognises um, his fault, in the last five years, but I'm afraid if, if the five last five years have taught us anything, and if the last week has taught us anything, um, I doubt that. I doubt that's ever going to come.
0: Yeah, and and in a in a way, it does sort of make conversation about Corbyn somewhat redundant, doesn't it? Because he's, I mean, we we know as as you were saying, then we know we know he's incredibly. It's incredibly unlikely he's going to make the kind of apology that is necessary for so many people to hear. Based on, you know, who who he is, and it's incredibly unlikely that uh, the stage that's going to change. But
1: um... yeah, I mean, you know, on, on, you know, on, on the day of on the day of Muralgate, right? You know, on the day of mm. Muralgate, in a period that you know JLM was receiving criticism, you know, from from even within the Jewish community for the, the temerity to engage with the leadership of the Labour Party, you know, in order mm. to try and work through uh, the challenges that were were continuing. You know, on the day of that, the release of, uh, on the day of the reporting of Muralgate, sitting in Normanshaw South with people from the leader's office having to explain to them the significance of this event, the fact that it was classical antisemitism of a particular variety and a particular trope that is highly recognisable to the Jewish community. And then the preceding, also the, the, the following, I should say, three days of three apologies, uh, that each um, you know, wasn't sufficient to be able to recognise the extent of the challenge. Um, but equally, each of those three apologies highlighting just how incredibly intransigent um, he would be in admitting a degree of responsibility or contrition. And I'm afraid mm. every time we've been in a situation where, you know, anti-Semitism has raised itself within the party, you know, we've never seen the degree of sincerity that that... You would hope a human being might have for another human being who says that they have been hurt, and and that is not what we saw last Thursday, and it's certainly what we did not see on Tuesday.
0: Mm, absolutely, um, and and you, you mentioned about the, the the history of anti-Semitism within the left and the Labour Party and, and, and like, in, relate, in relation to like why JLM was set up in the first place. I wonder if you'd just be able to talk a little bit about that history, because I, th- I think um, so, so, some of the sort of media narratives around anti-Semitism and Labour over the past five years have sort of treated it as if it is a, a new phenomenon that is sort of inextricably linked to Jeremy Corbyn and Jeremy Corbyn's leadership and that with Corbyn's departure and the arrival of Keir Starmer as leader, then it will sort of sort itself out. But, but as you say, this is not a, this is not necessarily a new thing. This is, this is in fact, very, very old. Um, so I just wondered if you'd just be able to sort of give a sort of rundown of, it, of yeah, the, yeah. That, that history.
1: Like, anti-Semitism is um, something that civilization has had to, to, to account for yes. for thousands of years. You know, it, it, it starts with forms of, of Christian anti-Semitism that, Held Jewish people collectively accountable for the for the death of Christ. It was the Middle Age, anti-Semitism that um, thought that that you know Jews were responsible for the death of Christian children and the drinking of um, their blood or the baking of it into um, Passover bread. You know the, mm. the 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 anti-Semitic tropes of of the Middle Ages and, it, and 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 the morphing of that anti-Semitism into a racial anti-Semitism of the 1800s that that kind of saw its uh, zenith. Um, you know, in the in the mid-century of of the twentieth century, uh, that that sought to kind of paint Jews as as disproportionately powerful or, or disproportionately mm. controlling or, or responsible for you know media and 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 banks and, and, and general control. Um, you know, and, th- and th- that anti antisemitism mutated into a particular form of Stalinist antisemitism that recast you know the racial antisemitism of of that period into a, mm. a, a new form of of antisemitism that positioned again. A collective Jewish identity is disproportionately powerful in control of world events. You know, anti Semitism has been around for centuries and probably it will be around for centuries too. But the responsibility of those who are involved in mainstream British politics and mainstream international politics is to keep those discriminations and those hatreds at bay. It's to challenge them, it's to challenge those narratives and to say that they aren't acceptable and that there is a limit to the kind of conspiratorial worldviews that unfortunately do find themselves susceptible to enter into left-wing spaces. And I'm mm. afraid you know, that was not what happened. What happened over the last five years was that people with problematic views, some people with problematic views, deeply problematic views, believed that the Labour Party was a party that they could now belong to and that they could join. And they joined the Labour Party, and the Labour Party did not police the boundaries clearly enough. And and most Labour Party members are good, decent, honest people, right? They believe in peace, they believe in justice, they believe in equality, they want to change the world. It's the reason that they joined the Labour Party. But far too many of them have been exposed to rhetoricians and ideologues with deeply problematic views, and unfortunately haven't had the... Um, the ability or the exposure to Jewish community or to the exposure to the history of anti-Semitism on the left, that I'm afraid they've been cut susceptible to, to some of those views. And it's a form of radicalization. It's a radicalization of the left that has put us in a situation that we are in today. And unfortunately, it's a radicalization that still continues by those who have closed their ears and their hearts to considering the impact Um, On Mm. Jewish people uh, when we continue to see the degree of denialism and the obfuscation that's happening you know literally right now um, Mm. as we're all asked to you know click bait onto um, uh, petitions galore uh, in order that emails can be captured to be deployed into a factional struggle a factional battle um, Mm. that that, the Jewish members of the that Jewish members are the ones um that are that are that are being weaponized. You know, mm. you know, people talk about weaponization of anti-Semitism. Well yeah, anti-Semitism has been weaponized. Um, it's been weaponized by people who believe that that's the hill on which they are willing to die mm-hmm. in order to um in order to retain control of, of party machinery. And quite frankly, Jewish Labour Party members in the Jewish community are sick and tired of it and 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 we're not going to allow it to continue.
0: Yeah. Yeah and and you I I wondered if 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 you think there's anything within being left wing that that you think makes makes it easier to be susceptible to this kind of thinking, and you you mentioned uh, sort of like suscept- susceptibility to conspiratorial thinking. Um, and I, I know this is this is something which always certainly strikes me, and I think I've I probably mentioned these points before on the podcast, so listeners this might be somewhat familiar. But I, but I am perpetually struck by a sort of inability to be. Self aware about one's stated political beliefs and one's actual political actions with regards to what you were saying about like equality and peace, mm-hmm. for example. And, and you say that you see this with transphobia as well on the left um, and other forms of discrimination. Um, a complete inability to sort of realize that your stated left wing intentions for wanting peace and wanting equality um, between people, um, that you don't actually deliver on that in practice. Um, and perhaps you're being very outwardly outright abusive and anti-semitic or you are engaging in subtle dog whistles um, that you either realize or you don't realize. Um, do, do you think there's anything in left politics that that makes it particularly susceptible? do you think it's a general human susceptibility to to political radicalization or is it a bit of a bit of both?
1: I think there are a few things that are going on at the moment. So, mm. um, and, and partly, you know, it's the theory of, of, of evolving, um, the evolving economy, evolving communication um, forms. Mm. And, you know, it's the stuff that, that, that Piketty talks about so so kind of eloquently mm. in the, the fourth industrial revolution, like the, the mm. nature of society and how we engage with each other is changing, right? Because mm. we've got new, interesting platforms and ways of, of doing that. And, um, you know, a hundred years ago, you would receive your news third party in black and white you know, 24 hours mm-hmm. after the fact, and you do that with a degree of objectivity and, and, and extraction. You know, I can go on Twitter now and I can see people killing each other and I can, on the other side of the world, and I can see that happening right now. And mm-hmm. so I think there's something happening in society that means that we react to uh, what's happening around us um, with a degree of kind of an emotional attachment um, that mm-hmm. we perhaps haven't had um, before. Um, and, and that isn't to say that that's a problem, but it's something that we have to acknowledge and it's something that we have to be aware of. And I think it's also happening at a time where we do have some serious problems. You know, we, we have global labour markets and global capital markets that are having serious consequence for communities um, that are unconstrained, that are operating in such a way that challenge the ability of nation states to be able to control their worst excesses. And when people feel out of control of the decisions that impact their lives and they feel fearful of what the future will hold, and unfortunately, they yes, yes, they do reach to um, conspiratorial thinking, because mm. and, and again, you know, this is part of the the, the challenge of, of the last five years in terms of the confluence of some of these anti anti-Semitisms coming together at the same time. That the Labour Party were unfortunately engaging in what I believe is a bit of left-wing political populism, right? Mm. The same type of populism that we've seen, you know, um, from Trump on the right in the states. It's the same form mm. of um, uh, political populism. On the right in some parts of Europe. It's the boiling down of very complex globalised problems into some really simple narratives that suggest that the reason that your kids aren't getting a decent future, the reason that you've got less money in your pocket and the reason that you can't afford a house is because it's the fault of somebody, right? Hmm. And it's the fault of somebody for whom is not identified. And um, I don't have the solution for you. I don't have the mechanism through which I'm going to explain how that can be different. But instead, I'm going to dog whistle and I'm going to um, and I'm going to I'm going to suggest that it's uh, the fault of of somebody else, and mm. and you know and, and unfortunately that 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 is the experience of the Jewish community over time, right? When you start saying that there are a small group of people, mm. elites who control global finance, who control global capital markets, um, then then unfortunately, um, you know that rings alarm bells, and that's not to say mm. that people are doing it consciously, but it starts to ring alarm bells and in the context of that kind of kind of left wing right wing political populism that isn't able to address some of these fundamental challenges then, then that's where it's actually the responsibility of the left and it's the responsibility of leaders to to set out their stall and to ensure that they're not taking people down some really really mm. dangerous paths
0: absolutely that was a really interesting sort of contextualization within within bigger Bigger political events going on. I mean, I mean, it it was interesting you, your point about um, the way news transmission is different and how how that can make you feel emotionally um, and the degree of emotional investment in in things that you otherwise would just have no no idea about and would have no, no even the possibility for emotional investment in. I mean, you mentioned earlier about how um, we we we've effectively seen ideologues and demagogues. Um, taking advantage of that kind of polarisation um, in order to make people susceptible to this kind of radicalization. I, I This is something that, and you mentioned Trump, um, and this, this is something that I have been thinking a lot about over the past few weeks, about the extent to which these kind of problems can be stemmed by the, by sort of removing the individuals responsible from the equation and in a way, we we have seen that in a very very literal sense, with, with both examples we've spoken about, in that Jeremy Corbyn was removed from the Labour Party, and removed from the Parliamentary Labour Party. Um, Donald Trump was removed from, um, well, will be removed from, from secret the Secret Service, maybe. Yes, one 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 hopes that would be a good sight. Um, removed from the office of the presidency. Now, of course, there are innumerable differences between Corbyn and Trump, um, as well as as well as the similarities we've mentioned. But um, I, th- I think maybe the, op- the the optimistic part of me, and I, and I do tend to try to be optimistic, or at least realistically optimistic, it says that just the, the the very absence of these kind of these individuals is a help in itself and, and will go. A long way to to combating the these contemporary issues, and then the more pessimistic part of me is like these issues don't necessarily go away because they've existed for so long, um, and removing the individual at the top won't really do anything. But do, do, I, I guess comparatively with Corbyn, in terms of the broader Corbynite movement, I mean, I mean, pro Corbyn support within the Labour Party is effectively collapsed um there's there's a not insignificant number of people within the party who uh pro his um you know reinstations of labor mp etc etc um but th- certainly nowhere near the 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 numbers which we were used to several years ago while he was leader um and I, I wondered if you had any thoughts about that do, do you think the sort of removal of these individuals from the equation does actually have a su- substantive impact or like, um, um, I, I guess it's similar, similar in America. Like does the removal of somebody like Trump have a substantive impact on these kind of like um, on those, on those currents of, of uh, racism, discrimination and populism? Does it, um, do, does, does it sort of lead to internal collapse of, of that of the movement or I don't know it's kind of a big question but um... no no I,
1: and, I, and I think it's probably a really interesting one and you know yeah. and, and maybe there are there are actually two ways of, of looking at this I think mm. you, know, the, the, the is, um, you know the first is you know the first is I do believe that there is a limit to what you might consider to be acceptable discourse and particularly within um, the public sphere you know the um, yeah, some of the discussion seems to be veering off this week into, you know, the notion of free speech, you know, and that, you, know, um, you know, having lost the argument that, um, you know, that antisemitism is wrong and bad and shouldn't be allowed in mainstream political discourse, well, we're now seeing people start to say, well, you know, free speech is a really important value. Well, you know, there are limitations to free speech, you know, not, not just in, in legal terms, but in ethical terms. You know, we don't allow people... To say and do things which disagree with our values, and, and, and we hold that quite dear, actually, within the Labour Party, we we do have a universal understanding of what equality looks like, and, and we hope and we wish to implement that for, for everybody. And if you you are outside of those boundaries of, of of a collective agreement about what equality looks like, then actually, you know, you don't deserve to be part of that of that discussion. If you mm. um, ex- express discriminatory views and ideas, then then you should be out of it. And I think the second is, look, it's a challenge for the left. You know, nobody in the course of anti-Semitism has asked us what our politics are. And actually, Mm -hmm. that's a crying shame, right? Nobody has really ever said, what do you believe about the economy? What do you believe about society? What do you believe about how we need to change the country for the better? There's an assumption, and it's a disgusting assumption, that somehow, because we're Jewish, and because we take a particular view on um, equality issues... That therefore must mean that we are factionally aligned to a particular set of ideas and principles about the economy or society. Mm. And it's nonsense, because you'll find radicals within the Jewish labour movement, just as you'll find economic and social radicals in all parts of the Labour Party. right? And actually, what we'd love to do is to be able to have those conversations, to be able mm. to think about what the, um, the radical political project looks like moving into the next Four years talk about how we can structure the economy and society in a way that benefits more people and actually to some extent the left have now got a challenge you know do they really want to tie themselves to the legacy of Jeremy Corbyn and the legacy of what has happened over the last five years if they really want to advance the core central arguments that it is important for them to make You know, nobody is saying that people should not be advancing the type of radical politics that people within um, Jeremy Corbyn's movement wants to advance. You know, that might be Mm. um, the suspicion, that might be the allegation, but actually, you know, we're a broad church. We've always been a broad church. We have a clause Mm. for that spells out very clearly what principles that we have as a party. But we've Mm. always been able to historically have those conversations in a spirit of tolerance, solidarity, and respect. Those are the ways that we've been doing it. But unfortunately, we've lost our way in the last five years. And actually, the degree of intolerance for dissent and for difference um, has been something that's really, I think, corrupted the way in which we've gone about as a party. Um, And and actually, we need to return to some of those central principles, which is, I should be able to have a difference of opinion with somebody inside the Labour Party. right? I shouldn't be uh, you know, I should not be attacked because of it. I should not be undermined because of it. Um, I should not be excluded because of it. Um, that being said, if you're going to do those things on the basis of my identity or on the identity of others, their protected mm. characteristics, then do not be surprised that people say that you perhaps don't really have uh, Labour Party values and Labour Party principles at the core of the way that you go about your politics.
0: Mm. Absolutely, um, and. As somebody who is, as somebody who who is a member of the Labour Party, but did not necessarily grow up within that sort of political political sphere, and who try, tries to sort of like has sort of you know th- th- things going outside of politics, I am perpetually shocked by the degree of factionalism within Labour and how I think when, when you know. Uh, speaking on, on, on a personal level, when, when I first um, got involved with the social review and, um, you know, Labour politics, well, generally I, I was I was stunned by how normalised political factionalism is and how it was just sort of taken as a given and how it is taken as a given that there is this degree of just like, in some instances, all that hatred between one wing of the party and another. And, and as you were saying, that sort of assumption about your politics based on um up based, based on like some positions some positions you may hold or based on who you are I, th- I think I, I I thought that was ridiculous when I was introduced to it I continue to think it's ridiculous i I think that it is normalized to a degree that many people in the party don't even really comprehend the degree to which it is ridiculous and I think a lot of people could do very well with just getting themselves a bit of space from politics and sort of being able to understand. How maddening it is that this kind of factionism is so normal, and how it really is should not be normal. Um, but
1: when, you know, when I join when I joined the Labour Party in my teens, I'd turn up to mm. CLP meetings in you know uh, in the Ukrainian Church in uh, in Leicester, and we'd mm. all go down to, to the the bar at the end of it for for a pint or a cup of coffee, and I would be able to debate with. Uh, socialists of all different varieties and flavours, how are we going to fix the world? And we disagree wholeheartedly on some issues and we would agree on others. And mm. there does seem to be, certainly, I think, in the last um, few years, the kind of erasure of that of that tolerance and that acceptance for disagreement and debate. Now, human beings are social animals, right? We're always going to want to have company. And those company Mm. those companies are going to find themselves into political groupings, particularly in the Labour Party. You know, Mm. we've got 22 socialist societies that you know range from everything from you know Jews to to animal welfare to you know Christians and um, uh, 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 and people who care about the environment. You know, congregations of people come together because they agree on certain things and they want to be in spaces in which they can enjoy other people's company, and particularly Mm. for, for politicos, right? I mean, how many of us? In the Labour Party's social circles are fundamentally built up around um, our campaigning and our, and our well, CLPs, yes, exactly. yeah? yes. So so there's always going to be an element of people wanting to congregate and come together. I think mm-hmm. the most important thing and the thing that we've been missing um, is that tolerance, you know, is the tolerance for disagreement. You know, we can have, uh, you know, and I, I think of Leclerc and I think of people like Mouffe who, who, who talk of this notion of agonistic politics. That it should be acceptable for you to have disagreements about ideas, but you should be able to do it in a way that's respectful of somebody else's position um, as, you, as, you, uh, as you come to to, to to form a view. And in Judaism, we, we, we call it, in Hebrew, we call it Mechrochet Shem shemayim. It's this idea that you should have arguments for the sake of heaven. You should have arguments because you want to reach a position where you can understand somebody's point of view, that you can test those ideas, and then you can come to a collective decision about how you go forward and I'm afraid you know whether it's you know and, and, and if you just if you if you look at anti-semitism through that that prism and he, and, he, and you understand it as discriminate as discriminatory but then you look at it in the context of what people have been going through the last five years I and mean, it's a form of silence and it's a form of removal of agency and a removal of power um, and, and that's been you know that that's been the most kind of difficult and hurtful thing for an awful lot of, of Jewish members
0: mm. And that also feeds nicely into the two last things I just wanted to talk about, which is what JLM is is, is doing essentially. Um, what, what you guys, what you guys are up to. Um, and, um, you you guys, you guys run um, anti-Semitism training in CLPs, um, right? We used I, we, to. We used to. Yeah. Used to. Okay. Yeah. Um, so. Well, one of yeah one of our editors was, was asking about those what what yeah so what, look, we, why did they stop
1: we, we we used to run training sessions right we we mm-hmm. in, at the height of the kind of the emergence of these issues mm. you know we were spending our members subs sending speakers around the country asking mm. constituency labor parties and labor party members not to be um not to be anti-semitic mm-hmm. and you know and for Parts of the country that perhaps don't have an active Jewish community or don't have people who are identifiably Jewish as part of their environments, um, it was really helpful. You know? We had some great conversations and we, we got to know each other and we would be able to talk about difficult issues in a, in a, in a, mm. in a, in a half-decent way. Um, and then, unfortunately, we started seeing motions and we started mm. seeing supposition and right. uh, we started seeing discrimination. And, and, and really, two things were were the things that took the um, that, that took the biscuit. The first was when um, a CLP uh, in the northwest region uh, declined our invitation for training because mm-hmm. um, they claimed that we were being funded by ISIL. Um, right. You know, you kind of want to laugh until you really want to cry. Um, and the second, and it was demonstrated actually in the HRC report that, uh, and we knew it at the time. Um, it was denied, of course, that. Um, The Labour Party, having commissioned us to do that training as early as 2016 in response to the Royale report, um, Mm. effectively wanted to cut us out of the picture and and, and bring others in for whom um, perhaps were we're being less vociferous in in, in challenging the the Labour Party on antisemitism. Uh, And so Mm. we we, we withdrew. I think we desperately love to get back to touring the country, meeting members to talk about Jewish values, to talk about Mm. um, antisemitism. Not that we want to, uh, but it's a task that we now need to do in order to be able to kind of end that radicalism and that radicalization. Um, and I think we'd love to, but we need to we need to do that knowing that the Labour party uh, institutionally as a party is going to respond to the EHRC um, but also that we can have those conversations in CLP in CLP meetings um, without, you know, the notion of kind of sending our members into some really hostile hostile situations so yeah, yeah. we we'd, we'd, we'd love to get back to it and mm. we would hope that if the Labour Party can can think and reflect and, and and look at what's happened in the wake of the EHRC report in the last week or so um that that the Labour Party can think that that's probably a more constructive way of, of having this conversation than it is trading mm. uh, statements in in the press or or, or clickbait uh, clickbait petitions.
0: Mm yeah and and um staying on that same wavelength of of looking to the future what 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 is what what have j l m got um coming up either in the near future um that um you guys are working on or or in the sort of like longer longer term future is there anything that um you guys are gonna be trying to um bring to fruition over the next few years um or anything like that
1: yeah look well you know the first thing is we're going to be responding to the hrc report and we're going to be working with mm. the labour party to make sure that we can you know put an end to what we've what we've seen and and, and make sure as an implementation plan and, and that implementation plan is is done and that will you know undoubtedly be the kind of the core of our of our work um in mm. in the next six months but probably longer um but mm. you know equally there needs to be a life for jewish members beyond anti-semitism inside the yeah. labor party and jlm wants to build that future um, and we're starting, just as we always do each year, with a one-day conference. Unfortunately, we can't do it face-to-face and in person, as we would love mm. to otherwise do. Um, but on the 29th of November, um, we're having a, mm. a virtual one-day conference. Um, we've got some incredible speakers uh, from all parts of the party um, discussing issues from anti-Semitism to you know, the, uh, ethical foreign policy, you know the environment, all the way through to um, the future of equalities law. And, um, you know that's a, an open conference uh you know it absolutely is for our members but we would love to see friends and allies and, and perhaps even some people who want to have a have a constructive and open conversation with us um in which mm. we can kind of look at what's happened and, and how we build forward um and you know so your listeners um anybody who wants to come could definitely get mm. a ticket go to JewishLabour. uk, and one day conference will be right there and we'd love to see you there
0: I think that's a good place to, to wrap up on and listeners would absolutely recommend you go along to the one day conference. Um, Peter, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Thanks for very much for having me.
0: And another episode of the social review podcast draws to a close. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much to Peter uh, for coming on um, and talking to us. Um, if you like the sound of their one-day conference, then you can go book a ticket. As Peter said, it's on the 29th, uh, so this coming Sunday. Um, just go to jewishlabor.uk, and all the details will be over there. It looks really fantastic. They've got a whole range of speakers, um, including people like Margaret Hodge, Ruth Smith, uh, Angela Rayner, Keir Starmer himself. Um, so it's going to be really interesting, really valuable, really insightful, and i would recommend it the hiatus the short hiatus um is definitively over we are back um we've got several episodes lined up coming out over the coming weeks um interviews discussions light-hearted and serious as is the fashion over here at the podcast all building up to what is quickly becoming a christmas tradition long-time listeners you may remember our christmas special from last year and if you enjoyed it well keep your eyes and ears peeled over the holidays Thank you ever so much. Stay safe. Goodbye.